0: This is Seeger Gray and Vicki Iden with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: Elections officials nationwide are being urged to prepare for supply chain issues that could lead to shortages in paper used for everything from ballots to I voted stickers, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. That's a key issue at a summer conference on election security where people who run elections are being urged to prepare for supply chain issues in paper and computer hardware.
0: In other election news, Republican state lawmakers today struck down a guidance for curing or fixing minor typos on absentee ballots. We'll have more about that ruling and what it means in just a few minutes. And for voters, today is the last day to register to vote in the upcoming primary election online or by mail. And after today, if you want to vote but you're not registered, you'll need to register in person at your polling place on Election Day or at your municipal clerk's office by Friday, August 5th.
1: The Evers administration is suing more than a dozen PFAS manufacturers and chemical companies to cover the cost of remediating the toxic family of chemicals all across Wisconsin. The lawsuit was filed today in Dane County Court. It alleges that a host of manufacturers, including 3M and Tyco Fire Products, knew or should have known their products are hazardous. Governor Evers and Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call announced the suit at a press conference this morning on French Island in La Crosse, where some residents have been using bottled water because of PFAS contamination in their wells, reports Wisconsin Public Radio.
0: The People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals Foundation, otherwise known as PETA, filed a class action lawsuit yesterday against an organic dairy cooperative based in Wisconsin. PETA is suing the Lafarge-based Organic Valley over allegations of cruelty to dairy cows and calves. The lawsuit alleges that the company misled the plaintiff, who is based in California, into buying its products at premium prices with the false claim that it treats cows with love. On the contrary, the suit contends, co-op members separate newborn calves from mothers. Organic Valley has nearly 1,800 member farmers and is the largest organic farming cooperative in the United States, with more than $1 billion in sales.
1: Sean Levy, the brief and former principal of East High School, will not be principal uh, of one of Madison's alternative high schools next year, reports the Capital Times. Levy allegedly withdrew his candidacy for the position, according to an email sent to Madison School Board members from Superintendent Carlton Jenkins. But the district, which has known about the withdrawal for nearly two months, has been mum about that until now. But with less than seven weeks to go until the school year begins, Levy remains under contract to be the principal, a role that technically began on July 1st. Levy was first hired in the Madison Metropolitan School District to be principal at East High School last summer. He was removed from that position last fall and transferred to an administrative position after pushback from students over his comments about sexual assault and his handling of a high-profile assault case.
0: And now, on to today's top stories.
1: A minor typo may not mean much to you, but it could be the difference between having your ballot counted and having it thrown out. Elections clerks are able to correct certain typos on absentee ballots, but a decision by state lawmakers today throws that ability into question. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more.
2: A Republican-controlled legislative rules committee suspended a rule today that authorized local election clerks to fix information on absentee ballots. The Republican-Majority Joint Committee for Review of Administrative Rules threw out the rule on a 6-4 vote in an executive session, saying the Wisconsin Elections Commission did not have the authority to implement the rule. They say that the decision should be left up to lawmakers. Previously, if an election clerk received an absentee ballot that had, say, a typo in their street name, the clerk would be able to fix the error themselves. The rule was first implemented in 2016 and was in effect during the 2020. 20 presidential election. Last week, the Elections Commission submitted an emergency rule further cementing clerk's ability to correct errors. Rachel Rodriguez is the election specialist at the Dane County Clerk's Office. She says that today's decision is in regards to last week's rule.
3: So the Elections Commission submitted this emergency rule and um, the committee decided that they were not going to approve it, that they were going to suspend the rule. Now, the practical sort of response is that, you know, in reality, it it doesn't really change much in that with the suspension of the rule, it still leaves in place the 2016 guidance that the Elections Commission issued on this topic. And so clerks, you know, are still able to follow that guidance.
2: While the clerks are still able to fix ballot errors under a non-binding guidance from the Elections Commission, that is now further in jeopardy. Last week, the Republican Party of Waukesha County filed a lawsuit against the Elections Commission calling for a ban on clerks and election officials' ability to fix the errors. In recent months, Republican state lawmakers have attempted to pass several bills regarding how elections are run. Those bills have all been vetoed by Governor Tony Evers. Republicans in the committee called the issue open and shut. Representative Stephen Nass, a Republican of Whitewater, who also sits as the chair of the committee, says that the Wisconsin Elections Commission rule is plainly illegal.
4: The absentee ballot procedures, they're mandatory. They're in our law. They were passed by duly elected legislators through our legislative process. I mean, the statute that really matters here has been around since the 80s. And um, paragraphs three through paragraph seven... Uh, it's, it shall be construed as mandatory. Those are the requirements that must be fulfilled to have a valid uh, vote. And it indicates that if, the, if in contravention of these procedures specified in these provisions, that ballot may not be counted. I mean, that's our law. It's, it's pretty clear. It's right here in in
2: black and white. Democratic Representative Gary Hebel of Some Prairie, however, lambasted the decision to suspend the rule, calling the decision a partisan ploy.
5: We have uh, uh, Wisconsin Elections Commission, they have a function. They're they are made up of three Republicans, three Democrats. They've given us uh, some rules that will really help us in terms of the, the election process. We have got clerks that are overworked, underpaid, and they are fantastic people. And we give them no guidance by suspending this rule. Uh, this is a horrible mistake, but it continues to the The road that the Republicans are going down to try to make elections questionable to try to provide litigation so that any time their candidate loses they can go into court and fight because they don't have the votes and so they
2: got to cut out cut down the number of people that are voting so any way they can do it after today's ruling organizations on both sides of the political spectrum gave their thoughts on the decision conservative legal firm wisconsin institute for law and liberty or will applauded the decision saying that the matter should be reserved for the legislature Meanwhile, the Survival Coalition of Wisconsin, an organization advocating for people with disabilities, say that the ruling will negatively impact people who are disabled. Last year, the nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau reviewed almost 15,000 absentee ballots in Wisconsin and found that only 7 percent, or 1,022, of all of the absentee ballots were missing parts of a voting witness's address. Of that 7 percent, clerks had corrected the information on 66 ballots. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Waggyhout. A low-income apartment
0: complex is set to be constructed on Madison's east side. This comes after the city's Common Council approved the plan at their meeting last night. WORT reporter Reed Kamai has more.
6: Last night, the Madison Common Council approved the zoning for a new low-income housing complex on East Washington Avenue. The project will see 245 apartment units built for families with an income between 30% and 80% of the area median income. The Wisconsin Housing Preservation Corps, or WHPC, is commissioning the project. They specialize in low-income housing and own over 8,500 such units throughout Wisconsin. Mike Slavish, the chief operating officer of WHPC, says that the need for affordable housing in Wisconsin is what fueled this endeavor.
3: Only a third of people in our state that qualify for affordable housing can actually find it. And unfortunately, the other two-thirds that remain then end up spending, you know, upward as much as 50% of their take-home pay in rent, which clearly doesn't leave much for other, you know, necessities like, like food, you know, utilities, healthcare, transportation, childcare, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a crisis that we have in our state, um, no different across the U.S.
6: Alder Eric Paulson is a member of the city's plan commission to which the proposal was first presented. He also laid out the challenges of finding affordable housing.
5: You know, we need to see more of that, um,
3: uh, so whatever whatever we can do, we try we try to shake every tree we can to uh, to be able to to create uh, more affordable housing uh, and be able to help
5: uh, fund some of that. Um, but yeah, it's a it's it's a challenge. I mean, it's really hard. It's really rough renting out there uh, today. The prices are really
6: high. This project will require the demolition of a now vacant Bimbo Bakery location, which closed down in 2019. Megan Walela, the development project manager for WHPC, presented the proposal at the Common Council meeting. She pointed out that the property is located at one of the stops of the future bus rapid transit system.
1: So this site is located along the BRT red line and will help promote the city's sustainability goals. So residents of this development would be able to board the BRT at the right Fair Oaks stop.
6: Colin Punt, a planner in the city of Madison's planning division, says that it is critical for low-income housing to be within walking distance of public transit and other key locations, as will be the case with the new development. Uh, we're, we're really looking at affordable housing in places where people can access all the things that they need to live
0: uh, a, a you know a successful life um, and not kind of shuttling the affordable housing to out-of-the-way locations where, you know, it very well may be cheaper uh, to build it, but it's it's somewhere that you can't get to jobs, you can't get to school, you can't get to get groceries. It takes forever to get anywhere.
6: While the idea drew overwhelming praise from alders and public commenters alike at the Common Council meeting, concerns have been raised about the complex's proximity to the Dane County Regional Airport, especially with the F-35 jets forthcoming. But as Mike Slavish says, WHPC took this into account.
3: And I believe how we address those concerns is that we committed to providing additional sound attenuation measures within the building to address that. Uh, you know, things such as um, thicker glass in your windows and your exterior doors, additional drywalling, spray foam insulation, which is a tighter type of insulation than your typical bad insulation, more brick massing on the building to you know, mitigate any vibration that might occur.
6: Slavish says that projects like this reflect the growing population in Madison.
3: Just that we're really, really excited about uh, the opportunity to provide, you know, more much needed housing, you know, in Madison. Again, Madison, a community that is is growing considerably, as we all know, and, um, you know, with that growth comes the need for for more affordable and workforce housing for those that, you know, are in many cases gainfully employed here in our community.
6: The demolition of the current building is expected to take place in the first quarter of 2023. Construction is projected to last between 15 and 18 months. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reid Kami
1: It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A new Marquette Law School poll was released today, which surveyed national attitudes towards the U.S. Supreme Court in the wake of Dobbs. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Charles Franklin, director of the Marquette Law School poll, about what they found.
2: So, Charles, new poll came out just here today, and it's a national poll, not just for Wisconsin. So, just broadly, what did you ask people about for this poll and why?
5: Well, we're obviously really interested in reaction to the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade, uh, the 1973 abortion decision. So in our release today, we're looking at views on that decision and views of the court and how that's changed over the last few years. And uh, then tomorrow, we'll be looking at the political effects looking ahead to the November elections. But today we're focusing on the Supreme Court and opinions of it and of its decisions this summer.
2: And they certainly did make uh, quite a few decisions this summer. And we'll get into some of the individual topics in a bit here. But just starting off broadly, what what did people think about the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, What did you find? And going sort of from there, what sort of discrepancies were there between people who describe themselves as Democrats versus Republicans?
5: we've seen a dramatic fall off in approval of the court over the last year but especially over the last uh, few months since march uh since the court's initial draft decision on the abortion case came out and then of course since uh, late june when the final decision came down in july in this current poll only 38% approve of the job the court's doing, 61% disapprove. But two months earlier, in May, 44% approved, and in March, 54% approved. So we've seen a really sharp fall-off in these last few months as the abortion decision was coming forward. But I think it's also worthwhile pointing to July a year ago, in july of 2021 when fully 60 percent approved of the job the court's doing and so we've seen a 22 point drop over the course of a year and that's very closely tied to the abortion decision of those who favor overturning roe in this july poll 83 percent approve of the job the court's doing but of those opposed to that decision just 11% approve of the court. And that's a gigantic increase in the difference in views of the court just in the last few months. Again, of those opposed to overturning Roe, fully 45% approved of the court in March. So that's been a drop of over 34 points among those that don't like the Roe decision. And finally, in partisan terms, A year ago, there were no partisan differences in view of the court. 59% of Democrats approved, 57% of Republicans, and 61% of independents. Now, a year later, that's 67% approval for Republicans, just 39% for independents, and all the way down to just 15 percent of Democrats that approve of the court. So we've gone from no party polarization a year ago to party polarization that looks almost as strong as the party differences in views of the president.
2: And now, like you said, this is the sort of main crux of this poll that was released today is the uh, overturning of Roe decision there. So sort of going through your questions there, what did you find? What did what do people think about that?
5: Well, people largely do oppose the decision. That's the the sort of first takeaway. Thirty-six percent favor the decision to overturn. Sixty four percent are opposed. That hasn't changed very much, though those in favor did tick up five points from May and those opposed went down five points. Uh, that's not much um, change overall, but it is a little bit of a shift in that direction. Um, we also found that on uh no surprise, big partisan differences in opinion about overturning Roe uh that follow Republican support, Democratic opposition and independents more opposed to the decision than in favor of it.
2: And so over these past few months, I know you have been doing this poll regularly. How, how exactly have these opinions changed? You looked at how people thought before the leaked draft and then after the leaked draft and then just this one, which was after the official decision. So how on sort of both ends, how have people's opinions changed on both this decision and the court as a whole?
5: In terms of this decision in particular, there we haven't seen much movement. I mentioned a little five-point tick this time, but we have seen steadily in the mid to upper 60s and occasionally the low 70s opposed to overturning row, and those in favor of overturning row have typically been in the mid to lower 30s and now 36 In favor of that decision 64 opposed so not a lot of change at all over the time we've been asking this since uh, September of 2019 so over a good period as well as over this year not much change in that opinion it's really views of the court and uh, views of whether you approve or disapprove of the court but also how you see the court in ideological terms has changed pretty dramatically. Back in 2019, fully half, 50%, said they saw the court as moderate on a liberal to conservative scale. Only 5% then said the court was very conservative. But here in July, less than half, 21%, say it's moderate. That is, that is the moderates have fallen from 50% down to 21% seeing the court there. And those who see the court as very conservative has gone up from 5% to 34%, nearly seven times increase. So this is a pretty dramatic shift in viewing the court through an ideological lens. Back in 2019, uh, 33% said the court was somewhat conservative, so there was a bit of a of a perception that the court leaned to the right. But today, fully a third see it as a very conservative institution, with many fewer anchoring it as a moderate institution. So uh, that also is, I think, an important change in perception of the court over these um, three years since 2019.
2: Now, like I said, there's a a handful of other decisions that you uh, looked at here, one involving uh, gun rights and the Second Amendment, another one with uh, LGBTQ discrimination protections. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't really have time to uh, cover all of those today. (laughs) So uh, do you just have any final thoughts that you'd like to uh, share with me here?
5: Well, I think one is that support for uh, same-sex marriage and for anti-discrimination laws based on Uh, gender status, those remain very popular with the public and have strong public support. Uh, But also in the court's decision to extend gun rights to include carry of a weapon outside the home, we have a majority, 56 percent, that favor that decision. So in that ruling, the court was going with public opinion, whereas in the abortion decision, it was going against a strong majority.
2: I've been talking with Charles Franklin, director of the Marquette Law School poll, uh, about the poll that was released just today. Uh, You can read the full results, including the cases that we didn't touch on in this interview online on the Marquette Law School poll website. Charles, thank you so much again for coming on.
5: Thank you. Always a pleasure to do this.
0: The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Seager Gray, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us.
1: A billion-dollar industry in the United States alone, miniature golf isn't so mini anymore. Still, it is often overlooked in favor of its more professional predecessor. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, contributor Sean Bull takes to the carpeted green to get a closer look at golf's under, underappreciated little brother.
7: You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. If I asked you to name the most culturally dominant sport in America, which one would you pick? We spend tens of billions annually on Super Bowl parties. Baseball's most popular nickname is America's Pastime, but I think a sneaky contender for number one might be golf. I don't mean that they have the most famous pro athletes or the most watched events on television. I mean, if you look at the effects it has on the lives of the average American, golf has to be the most pervasive of any game we've come up with so far. Consider the landscape of the typical golf course, Immediately, you picture some scattered trees, ponds, and most of all, a short, dense carpet of grass. These scene settings, especially the grass, are lifted straight from golf's birthplace, Scotland. The UK's most northern lands are often overcast, rainy, and tend to have mild winters and summers. All perfect conditions to create grass so thick, you just want to cut it down to a spiky little mat and roll a ball around on it. Incidentally, lawn bowling also arose from the same country. On the other side of the Atlantic, there aren't many places with a climate exactly like Scotland's. And yet, we've never really adapted the game of golf to the diversity of environments in which it's enjoyed. Quite the opposite, in fact. Compare this with other sports. Somehow, even the highest level of professional tennis can be played on such disparate surfaces as clay, grass, and asphalt. But golf is always the same. From Phoenix to Fargo, we've terraformed little patches of this country into mini-Scotlands. And we aren't even satisfied with keeping it within the confines of the sport. The American grass lawn was born of a desire to have a little piece of the golf course at home, no matter how not at home that grass actually is. Here's a fun fact. Kentucky bluegrass, one of the most popular and recognizable turfgrass species, is actually from Europe somewhere. Go figure. But the pervasiveness of golf culture goes beyond how we've designed the better part of a continent. Golfing, recreationally, is its own huge thing. If you have a relative who you need to buy Father's Day gifts for, and they happen to golf even occasionally, you're set for life for gift ideas. Golf has somehow become THE stereotypical dad activity, rivaled perhaps only by fishing and there's a whole industry set up to profit from it. You can walk into a Kohl's right now and buy from a selection of gifts for the golfer in your life. There's a mug where the handle is somehow, awkwardly, a golf club, a necktie with a pattern of golf imagery. Socks that say, Do not disturb, I'm watching golf on the soles. These presumably will be read while the man wearing them lays feet up in a recliner. There are a variety of portable putting greens, sized to fit compactly in the home or office. There are even ones that are specifically shaped with a shortened club meant to be used while sitting on the toilet. But it's not just people giving the golfer gifts. No expense can be too great for the avid golfer. People can and do plan whole vacations which are essentially golf tours. And the industry knows this. Alabama's whole tourism strategy right now is a sort of one-two punch of Come down and see all the places where we made life hard for Martin Luther King. And then, while you're down here, why don't you all play a round of golf? I'm paraphrasing, but I've seen so many of those ads this year. Again, with the possible exception of fishing, there's no other amateur sport that pervades American culture like this. Compare it with another sport. I bet some of your dads have played on their local slow-pitch softball team. Have you ever gifted him softball-themed socks? If your dad plays in a weekly dart league, maybe he has one mug with a dart-shaped handle, but I bet you had to look online to find it. Golf is unique in the way its imagery has spread absolutely everywhere, and I kind of love that about it. I want a bit of that in my life, and what better way to dip my toe into being a golf guy than with a miniaturized version of the sport. I've been playing a lot of mini-golf recently, and having a blast. When the Scots first split it off from regular golf, I don't think they realized what they had on their hands. But now, mini-golf really might be the ideal version of the game. It has most of the same mechanics that make its older brother fun, with most of the downsides stripped away. At its most basic, miniature golf takes the principles of golf course design and passes them through an oops-all-putting-greens filter. There are still courses like this around. Just grass, no green carpet. This is already great, way more environmentally friendly than a full-sized course. But this only begins to explore the benefits of miniature golf. In shrinking the game down, it no longer has to take a full landscaping company to build a course. It's ambitious, but a dedicated person with the right resources and talent at their disposal could create 18 holes all by themselves. This means that mini-golf can kind of be whatever you want, and that extends beyond just its built environment. Golf as a sport was already pretty age-inclusive, but mini-golf is for everybody. It doesn't require the player to put much power in their swing, so basically anybody that can hold a club can give it a shot. Additionally, there's no right way to play mini-golf. On the same course, you might see kids running around pushing their ball like they're playing floor hockey, and actual dedicated golfers laser-focused on improving their short game. For those who want to take it really seriously, there's the U.S. Professional Mini-Golf Association. Every year, professional mini-golfers play in their own version of the Masters Tournament and U.S. Open. There are thousands of dollars on the line, and these people play like it. An average winning 18-hole round comes in with a score around 27-30, to which is a crazy number of holes in one. We actually have three USPMGA member courses in Wisconsin, one of which is Madison's own Vitense Golf Land, but you're unlikely to see a pro tournament grace our city anytime soon. The Mini Golf Masters is in October, and the US Open is in May. Those are actually some of Wisconsin's better weather months, But when you've got the option to host tournaments in Appalachian, Tennessee, or coastal South Carolina instead, well, I can see how we'd get consistently passed up. But you don't need to get on a plane to play the best mini-golf this country has to offer. In no particular order, here are a few mini-golf courses you can work into a weekend trip. At six hours away from Madison, Big Stone Mini Golf stretches this list a bit, but if you're in the area, it's worth a trip. The course is located in the wooded countryside west of Minneapolis, and its big feature is the sculptures. These aren't your normal mini-golf giraffes and windmills. The sculptures are massive creations of iron, stone, and concrete. My favorite hole takes place entirely under the hull of a flipped fishing boat, and at the end of the course, you shoot into a ball-sized lazy river. The stream slowly pulls your ball along until you reach the hole in the center, It then disappears with the most satisfying little bloop into a holding box below. A little closer in Minnesota is the course outside Lark Toys in the small town of Kellogg. Lark is a great toy store in its own right, but their golf course also punches above its weight. Its design isn't flashy, relying mostly on water and terrain to provide obstacles. However, you do get to play through a waterfall-covered cave which is pretty sweet. Also, their scorecard presents a series of goofy golf challenges, optional rules which take effect on odd-numbered holes, things like take your first swing with your eyes closed or use your putter like a pool cue. These provide great variety, especially for people who might have already played through the course once. My favorite local course has to be Timber Falls in the Wisconsin Dells. It's almost literally overshadowed by the Pirates Cove Adventure Golf next door, but Timber Falls is solid, regardless of the competition. One of its three courses is specifically marked as having scenic views, but all three overlook the bluffs of the Wisconsin River, so you really can't go wrong. As far as Illinois goes, Chicagoland has a lot of great options for mini-golf, even a course in Millennium Park, the heart of the city. But one that I've been dying to check out I swear I didn't plan that as a pun, is in the basement of Algrim Family Funeral Services. It's still very much a working funeral home, but members of the public can visit their extensive rec room by appointment. I hope to see you out on the green somewhere soon. If you see me, say hi and suggest a topic for another Parks and Landmarks. Or, if you'd rather, you can always email me at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's sean.bull at wortfm.org.
0: For WORT News, I'm Sean Bull. Yesterday, the city of Madison announced that they are expanding the city's CARES program, an alternative emergency response team that sends crisis workers to mental health calls instead of police. Last fall, WORT's Jonah Chester went for a ride-along to learn more about the program. The award-winning story was recorded on October 19th of last year, and no longer just responds to the downtown area and has responded to over 600 calls since launching in September 2021.
8: Madison's Community Alternative Response Emergency Services Program, or CARES for short, operates out of Fire Station No. 3 on Willie Street. They're dispatched in two-person squads, one paramedic and one mental health counselor, to certain non-violent 911 calls downtown. The goal of the program, which is tentatively going to expand citywide in the coming years, is to replace police officers as the default first responders in nonviolent mental health emergencies. The four person CARES team works out of a shared office space at the front of the station. They work in relative silence, which is occasionally punctuated by announcements from the overhead speaker.
7: Child, number three, child, child, child,
8: child, child. Their response vehicle, a gray Chrysler minivan with the CARES logo splashed across the side, shares garage space with the fire department's other emergency response vehicles. Compared to the fire department's rides, the CARES vehicle is nondescript. The only thing that actually distinguishes it as an emergency response vehicle is a small yellow emergency light on its roof. That, according to Assistant Fire Chief Chase Steadman, was added after the CARES van got ticketed by parking enforcement.
9: And and this is just kind of our first iteration. The the, the city happened to own this van already, and then we put some, um, you can see we put some CARES markings on it. The reason that we went with a kind of a non-emergency vehicle was because this was feedback that we got from the community and from other programs. Um, We were told that, you know, having um, something like a police car or something that looked more authoritative, even a fire department vehicle, might be a little bit intimidating.
8: Stedman admits that there are some drawbacks to the minivan. The light on its roof is used when it's parked and responding to a call. The vehicle doesn't give off a siren or alert drivers like a standard emergency response vehicle. That also means that folks aren't required to pull over for the CARES van. That can be a problem when navigating through Madison's difficult traffic. And Stedman says it's part of the reason the program is currently limited to areas that the team can reach quickly.
9: Um, We're able to carry medical equipment in the van for our paramedics to use. Um, and you know we've got a nice big bench seat for the patients to sit in. Um, our providers can sit here. Um, you know, you know it's it's not an ideal situation as far as you know in the middle of winter um, being able to sit in this van and provide kind of counseling or intervention services. But this is this is the best we can do right now, and it's working fine so far.
8: The current iteration of Cares is a pilot for a larger citywide program that is tentatively set to roll out in the coming years. City leaders set aside about $600,000 to fund the program through 2021 and are weighing another $600,000 in funding for 2022. Stedman says that the team has received nearly 50 calls since they launched on September 1st. According to estimates from the city, pre-2020, Dane County's 911 center received about 7,000 mental health-related calls per year.
9: So we've gone on a total of 49 calls up to this point. Um, we started a little slow, which was understandable. The 911 center was really being cautious about, um, you know, making sure that the calls they were sending the team on were safe calls. Um, but slowly over time, we've been averaging um, in the past few weeks about three calls a day. Um, so for an eight hour shift, you know, they spend a little over an hour on each one of these calls typically. So, um, you know, they're they're busy, but we expect to um, obviously, you know, have the call volumes increase um, as the 911 center gets a better understanding of the types of calls to send the team to, and also, of course, as we expand out beyond just the police central district.
8: Paco Bonin, one of two paramedics on the CARES team, says that the ability to take their time with folks experiencing a mental health crisis is crucial, and a departure from how first responders typically handle emergencies.
10: But uh, traditionally, an ambulance, um, especially in a busy area like the city of Madison, our paramedics, they have expediency in, in, in the forefront of their response, you know, so they will try to solve or provide that care and transport and then go back in service as, as expedient as possible so they can be available for the next call and got, you know, they're super busy. In our response model, we're able to take the time that it takes to to get people the sort of the outcome that is most favorable or appropriate in their in specific circumstance. So sometimes it's just, you know, De-escalating somebody can, we can be there for an hour, just just getting them to a place where they're able to state what their needs are and how we can best help them, you know. And our longest call I think has been like three and a half hours, and just you know sometimes it's just listening to people, and sometimes it's you know actually troubleshooting and making uh, contacts with different uh, resources or, or things that are that might come into play.
8: According to Mark Norton, care's other paramedic, the team also helps folks connect with long-term resources. Uh, basically we identify patients that either aren't aren't connected to services or just have like some additional stuff going on that isn't that I mean is, is acute enough to to generate a 911 response, but usually have a few more sort of chronic issues that may be going on just related to substance use, homelessness, just like needing access to resources. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of people out there doing really good work, but not everyone's always connected. So just being able to kind of get to know them and be able to figure out where the opportunities are to sort of help build those connections so that they can be better able to kind of meet their needs going forward. Norton and Bonin are one half of the CARES team. Its other two members are mental health counselors from Journey Mental Health, which has partnered with the city for the program. When called, they're dispatched in two-person teams, one paramedic partnered with one mental health counselor. Grace Falk, one of the CARES mental health counselors, says establishing rapport and trust with folks experiencing a mental health emergency begins with two intentions, compassion and dignity.
1: You know, it's filled with dignity and it's filled with acknowledging how they're feeling and how they're interpreting things, you know, at the time and um, having just a lot of compassion for why they might feel that way. I mean,
3: that is it in a nutshell.
8: Shakila Galvez, the team's other counselor, adds that the CARES program can only succeed with the support of the Madison community. Also, she says that if you see the CARES minivan moving through traffic, try to give them a little bit of leeway.
1: The, more, the longer we around, the more recognized we'll be. And I think so far we've had just, like, great reaction from the community in regards to, like, community events we've attended or just community stakeholders that we've met with, um, as well as just members of the community. We've been able to build a better rapport with with community members who really are like our eyes and our ears, um, sometimes on the streets. So just that. I feel very supported by the community already. So just keep doing what we've been doing. Um, and yeah, we always like when people recognize us, they say hi and things like that.
8: Going forward, the CARES program will continue without one of its primary architects, Fire Chief Steve Davis. Davis, who has served the city in various roles for more than 30 years, announced his retirement earlier today. In a press release, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway wrote that Chief Davis was a, quote, guiding force in establishing the crisis response team. At a press conference announcing the program's launch in August, Davis said that CARES was inspired by his prior experience as a paramedic.
0: This is a very personal day for me Um, as a former paramedic in the city of Madison. um, There was always calls that as a paramedic that we went on for mental and behavioral health type emergencies that fell outside of our protocols. And we really um, throughout the years have not had another place or an alternate resources to deal with people that that are having some type of
8: behavioral emotional or mental health crisis. And today, we start that journey. Madison's crisis response team operates Monday through Friday from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., responding to calls along the isthmus. There's no specific number to reach the team at. The decision on whether or not to deploy them is made by 911 emergency dispatchers. If the team receives a call for a mental health emergency but is already out on another call, police will be dispatched instead. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester.
1: We go now to July 1968 when the city council was trying to buy riot gear the UW regents were trying to crack down on student protesters and a new east side neighborhood center was trying to find a legal location Stu Levitan has the trying news from 54 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s
4: All the come- They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, July 1968. The Madison Parks Commission was really only looking out for the animals in the Henry Vilas Zoo when it told the Lions Club it had to move its Fourth of July fireworks out of Vilas Park. But it may have been doing a favor for the club and the entire city as well, as Warner Park proves a perfect spot for the patriotic pyrotechnics. With its easier access and more plentiful parking, the north side site draws about 70,000 to the 45-minute display. Activists follow with literature. Members of the Committee to End the War in Vietnam urging self-determination for the Vietnamese, and a group supporting New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller for president. A week later, the Rockefeller campaign comes to the UW campus in the person of New York Mayor John Lindsay, who draws a near-record crowd of 6,000 to the Union Terrace for a Friday afternoon campaign speech. It's the largest outdoor speech on campus since 8,000 gathered to hear Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru in 1949. The charismatic young Republican suffers no pickets or disruptions, is applauded for his attacks on the war and President Johnson, and is booed only for his references to Rockefeller. Lindsay also meets briefly with law professor Nathan Feinsinger, who settled New York's crippling transit strike in 1966. On July 11th, the council approves an $8,300 appropriation for the police department to buy 62 ride helmets, 48 nightsticks, and 150 gas masks. Or does it? As newly elected 8th Ward Alderman Paul Soglin notes the next day, there were only 18 members on the floor at the time of the voice vote. Since he and fellow first-termer Alder Alicia Ashman were both recorded as voting no, the measure could not have gotten the 17 votes required under council rules. Among the dozens of anti-Dao protesters sent to the emergency room by Bataan-wielding police in the Commerce Building on campus last October, Soglin says police shouldn't have additional riot equipment, quote, because they don't know how to use it and don't need it. And Soglin, currently a history graduate student, objects strongly to the resolution's preamble, which warns about, quote, increased activities by certain groups, making it imperative that the department be prepared to meet any situation that may arise. As far as I'm concerned, Soglin says, the motion was not passed. But as far as City Attorney Edwin Conrad is concerned, it was. Being recorded as voting no on a voice vote is not the same, he says, as voting no in a roll call. On Conrad's advice, Mayor Otto Feske signs the resolution appropriating the funds. The Madison Professional Policemen's Association writes to Ashman that it is, quote, shocked and dismayed by her vote, coming at a time when, quote, assaults on police are at an all-time high and the public is more and more condemning violence and supporting its police. Association Vice President Roth Watson says the group didn't write a similar letter to Soglin because it, quote, recognize that Alderman Soglin's constituents are not necessarily concerned with the safety of police officers. On July 22nd, Soglin, Ashman, WIBA radio host George Papa Hambone vukalik and Professor Mrs. Francis Hole file a taxpayer's lawsuit seeking to block the purchase as an unauthorized expenditure. The domestic arms race has to stop somewhere, Alder Ashman says. Why not stop it here? Circuit Judge Norris Maloney thinks the legal question is close enough that he issues a temporary restraining order on July 24th, stopping the city from going through with the purchase. The next day, Police Chief Wilbur Emery unloads his frustrations at a special meeting of the Equal Opportunities Commission. If everyone would shut up and forget about it, everything would be fine, he says, revealing that he, quote, would have preferred to keep the whole thing secret but had to go to the council for the money. Rather than litigate, the council simply re-legislates, bringing the matter back for another vote on August 8th. At about the same time that the Republican convention in Miami Beach is nominating Richard Nixon for president, the council ignores a satirical skit by the Wisconsin Draft Resistance Union and approves the riot gear 17-3. to 3. Ashman tries to attach a strict gun control measure, quote, for the further protection of officers, but is unsuccessful. On July 19th, the UW Regents adopt tough rules subjecting students to discipline, up to and including expulsion, for, quote, intentional conduct that seriously impairs university-run or university-authorized activities, by such acts as blocking building entrances or interrupting classes, speeches, or programs, by heckling or, quote, derisive laughter or other means. The code permits the immediate suspension of a student pending a hearing if it appears the misconduct will be repeated. A student who is expelled has to wait a full year before applying for readmission. Regent Walter Rank's motion to bar students who are expelled from ever applying for readmission loses 9 to 1. And when a group of residents in the Williamson-Marquette area voted to establish a community center within the Madison neighborhood centers, they hoped to set up shop in the former Assembly of God church at 1103 Jennifer Street. But at only 40 feet from the nearest residence, the building is 10 feet too close under the zoning code. The issue splits the neighborhood until the Zoning Board of Appeals settles the matter this month by rejecting the center's request for a variance 4 to 1. MNC Director Chester Smudzinski says the grounds of the Marquette School are a possible alternative. The site snafu is an unexpected sudden setback for the Plan Center's newly appointed first director, Reverend David G. DeVore. A graduate of the University of the South in Wisconsin's Neshota House Seminary, the 27-year-old has just completed a year as a curate at Grace Episcopal Church, where he was ordained. He has also been a chaplain for the Dane County Probation Department following clinical training in New York City's Lower East Side and Chicago's West Side at the Wisconsin School for Boys with the Illinois Prison System and on a South Dakota Indian Reservation. The Plan Center, the fourth under the auspices of the community-chest-funded Madison Neighborhood Centers, will offer the usual range of MNC activities, daycare for children of working mothers, hobbies, tutoring, games, dancing, sports, music, and group discussions. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was David Ahrens. Your reporters were Reed Kamai with Tegan Carter on special assignment. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull, Jonah Chester, and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan engineered tonight's broadcast, Nate Weggehaupt Wegehaupt produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Seeger Gray.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.